from HerbMentor.com. This is HerbMentor Radio. You are listening to Herb Mentor Radio on HerbMentor.com. I'm John Gallagher. My guest today is Sandor Alex Katz. Sandor is author of Wild Fermentation, The Flavor, Nutrition, and Craft of Live Culture Foods, and most recently, and perhaps one of my favorite book titles ever, The Revolution Will Not Be Microwaved, Inside America's Underground Food Movement. He is a fermentation revivalist, and you can visit Sandor at wildfermentation.com, which is an amazing online resource. Sandor, welcome to Herb Mentor Radio. It's a pleasure to be with you today. You know, and it's an absolute honor to have you here because we've been using your book ever since it came out. I remember when my uh, one of my mentors uh, took it out of the box and put it on the shelf, and I, they, she sold books in her uh, at her little shop, and I, I grabbed it right away and bought it. <laughs> <laughs> it well, I, I, did, hope, I hope you've been making use of it. I, yeah, uh, I did. I didn't even I didn't even need to to look in it. I just saw the cover. <laughs> <laughs> And knew it would be cool. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, we have been making use of it and uh, over the years, and it's uh, on the uh, cookbook shelf. Actually, is where it lives. So, um, it's a and even you know, even though it's got a lot of information as well, it's it's got to have it you know in arm's reach, you know. Um, so, you know, as, as you know, your work is, uh, really popular amongst herbal folks and those into natural health. In fact, you spoke at the Bastyr Urban Food Fair a couple of years ago. Um, that's in my backyard. I didn't get a chance to meet you there, but, um, but my wife got your card so I could email you. <laughs> but, uh, but we have lots of listeners who have not been introduced to the benefits of fermented foods. Now, being that it's August and it's uh, primo in my area anyway, it's primo pickle and sauerkraut making time, I thought it would be a great time to have you on. Um, so what I'm wondering is if you wouldn't mind starting out with the, with um, with actually maybe, maybe the what is better to start out with. Like, you know, what is, what, what, what are fermented foods exactly? Great. I, I think that's actually the perfect place to start, uh, you know, with the question, uh, what is fermentation anyway and, uh, and why should we care about it? So, um, you know, broadly speaking, fermentation is the transformative action of microorganisms. Um, typically, we, we reserve this word to refer to you know, foods and beverages that we intend to uh, put into our mouths, but obviously the transformative action of microorganisms is much bigger than that. Um, you know, food that we reject as rotten or spoiled, for the most part, we are rejecting because of the transformative action of microorganisms. Um, if you have a compost pile for your kitchen scraps or your garden scraps, that too is the transformative action of microorganisms. So, you know, because what happens to all matter over time, uh, all dead plant and animal matter, is that, you know, microorganisms begin to digest it. Um, you know, human beings from the earliest of times have, uh, you know, observed, uh, you know, how to manipulate environmental conditions to encourage the growth of certain organisms and to discourage the growth of other organisms. Um, if you take uh, you know, a, a head of cabbage and leave it whole on your pantry or if you shred it and leave it in a bowl in your pantry for uh, you know, three weeks or three months, it will never turn itself into sauerkraut. Um, you know, there is a technique, it's incredibly simple, it involves using some salt and pounding or squeezing the vegetables to draw liquid out, and then submerging the vegetables under the liquids, and thereby we prevent the possibility of molds growing and encourage the proliferation of acidifying bacteria. So, you know, all of the fermentation processes, you know, ultimately amount uh, to you know, some sort of simple manipulation of conditions to encourage the growth of certain organisms rather than certain other organisms. But it is the transformative action of the microorganisms that is the defining characteristic of, uh, of fermentation. Now, um, I, I hear the term a lot, and, 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 and sometimes people ask me this, and I always get a little confused. Like, for example, you know, we, we make 
we make sourdough bread in our house or we make uh i also make uh <clears throat> wine uh just you know just basic wine fermentation but then, then there's that term that that people use is lacto fermentation what is that and how is that different than other kinds of fermentation well, I mean, lacto fermentation really is simply, uh, you know, referring to the, you know, the group of organisms that are primarily responsible for it. Um, I myself don't really use that word because, you know, in in the natural world, microorganisms never exist in isolation. You never find, um, you know, lactic acid producing bacteria alone. You never find yeast alone. Um, organisms exist in communities. And which of the organisms in a given community that's present, you know, on some food, uh, in the air, uh, which of them will uh, become dominant in a given situation depends on what the nutrient is and to some degree on environmental conditions. So lacto-fermentation, you know, really refers to, uh, you know, acidic ferments acidified by lactic acid produced by the action of lactobacilli. Um, This is a really important um, group of bacteria for our health. Um, The most famous member of this uh, family, really perhaps the only bacteria that's really a household name, is acidophilus. That's uh, L-acidophilus, lactobacillus acidophilus. Um, and, 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 uh, and, and basically these uh, lactobacilli are the same kinds of bacteria that we all have in our digestive tracts which enable us to effectively digest food and assimilate nutrients. So these um, you know, live culture foods um, uh, defined by lactic acid and the presence of these lactobacilli are actually incredibly beneficial for our health. And they, you know, they range from, um, you know, yogurt and really many other uh, live culture dairy ferments, uh, sauerkraut, kimchi, all of the vegetable ferments, um, and certain of um, the class of what I would call tonic beverages. Mm-hmm. Um, all contain these, uh, you know, wonderful uh, dense concentrations of lactobacilli and um, effectively replenish. Um, populations in our digestive system. Now, you know, I'd say historically there was no reason really for people to have to think about replenishing the um, bacteria in their uh, in their digestive systems, but we're living in extraordinary times, and the bacteria that populate our uh, digestive systems are under continuous assault from, you know, antibiotics that we may elect to take as individuals, but that we are all consuming in our water every day just because of the mm-hmm. accumulation of these chemicals in the water table. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, compound that with the chlorine that's in the water, compound that with all these antibacterial cleansing products, and, um, you know, these bacteria that are so important to, uh, to our effective functioning um, are under um, pretty much continuous assault and really need to be consciously replenished if we are to, uh, if we are to thrive. So, um, yeah, then that gets into really the, the why of, of what folks wa- want to take this, uh, why they want to pay attention, you know, and, and, and use fermented foods. And, and, I'm, and I'm sensing that is that, some, is that somehow connected to, like, how you got into this like there's some, there's some at one point that you were just like oh i'm really interested in, in 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 doing this and it was must have been connected to the why but what's your story i'm, I'm really curious about your story okay sure well I, I i would say that there are um you know three distinct uh, stages to my getting involved in fermentation mm. um you know my first attraction to fermented foods was just uh through my taste buds Uh, You know, fermented foods have really wonderful, strong flavors, and they're not necessarily flavors that everybody loves, but the people who love them are very passionate about them. And, Mm -hmm. you know, really, if you walk through a gourmet food store and start thinking about the nature of foods that, um, you know, that, that, that we categorize as gourmet foods, almost all of them are the products of fermentation. And my favorite food as a kid growing up in New York City was sour pickles, what people in many parts of the country call kosher dills. Right. These are not cucumbers that have hot vinegar poured over them. These are cucumbers that are um, 
that are pickled in a brine, in a salty water solution. And in that solution, lactobacilli grow, and the acidification is lactic acid that's produced by these bacteria. And I just have always been drawn to this flavor. I love this flavor. And as a kid, you know, if I had a little spare change, that's what I'd go get myself as a snack, is, um, <laughs> is, is, is a pickle at a, you know, at a delicatessen in our neighborhood. Right. And um, so I just always have loved this flavor. I did not grow up watching my grandmother make pickles. You know, I have no, you know, I, like I, I'm not like continuing a, like a family lineage of this. It's just a flavor that I always have been drawn to. Then I spent a couple of years um, in the uh, in the late 80s where I was following a macrobiotic diet, mm-hmm. and um, you know one of the um, foods that's really emphasized by macrobiotics is the live culture pickles, um, sauerkraut, these uh, Japanese style of quick pickles. Um, um, these long, these, these long fermented uh, daikon roots that in Japanese they call taquan uh, pickles. But, but anyway, in macrobiotics, I started to get a sense of, um, you know, these live culture foods having an important digestive benefit. And, uh, you know, the, the, the macrobiotic teachers recommended beginning each meal with a pickle like that to stimulate the digestive juices. And I, I started noticing during that time that, um, you know, really, before I even put them in my mouth, just when I, when I would smell the, uh, the, the, the sour flavor, it, it would make uh, my salivary glands start, uh, start squirting. Wow. So I, I started really, um, you know, understanding there to be an important digestive benefit um, from the uh, from the live culture foods in particular, but even then, I, I really did not have any experience making them. What gave me a reason to start making them was when I moved from New York City to rural Tennessee and started uh, started having a garden. And I was confronted with the classic problem of all agriculturalists, which is all of the radishes are ready at the same time and all of the cabbages are ready at the same time. So you know, really historically, what has um, what has driven fermentation innovation has been the necessity of preserving the harvest. And, you know, more, more so than the nutritional benefits, I would say, you know, more so than the, than the flavor benefits, it is the fact that fermentation is a brilliantly effective method for preserving the harvest um, that, uh, um, you know, that, that basically found cultures all around the world fermenting foods. That's interesting you say that. Um, you say cultures all around the world, yet, and we use that word like a culture. You know, so oh, what's, yeah, what's no, the I, connection there? You know, I mean, that's that sounds like yeah, it's yeah, probably I mean, we, origin. Huh? You know, we we just you know a, a cultured food would be um, um, like a, a, a food that we introduce some specific community of organisms into. When you make yogurt, you take a little scoop of mature yogurt and introduce that into your, your new milk. Um, and so we, we, we call these little communities of microorganisms cultures. And we also call our, uh, you know, language and literature and music and science and, you know, really all of the things that uh, human, pe- human beings seek to pass down from generation to generation are also cultures. And so, you know, I really, um, I think that these foods, well, certainly they are not uh, incidental culinary novelties. These foods are somehow, you know, very much at the center of, you know, what it is to be human and the cultures that we have created together as, uh, as human beings. You know, when you, hear, uh, when you hear people's migration stories, you know, if people, you know, migrated across the ocean and they had the opportunity to bring whatever belongings they could carry, they always brought their food cultures. They brought their yogurt cultures. They brought their sourdoughs, um, um, things like that. Um, if we, if we, you know, investigate the word culture, mm-hmm. it comes from the word cultivation. Um, and, 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 and indeed, you know, we, we, we think about that with our children. We try, we're trying to cultivate our children, cultivate certain values in our children, um, c- cultivate certain, uh, you know, knowledge in our, in our children. Um, and this is in these foods and, and basically the, um, 
the, the knowledge that human beings have developed about how to effectively um, um, preserve foods, about, about how to um, prepare foods so that they can be effectively digested, this is a, an important part of the you know, cultural heritage that we need to be passing on um, uh, to our children and that we need to be embracing as uh, an important part of our culture. And I would go so far as to say that um, fermentation has played a central role in human cultural evolution. Um, I think that, um, you know, trying to imagine the transition of people in different places from um, migratory hunter-gatherer lifestyles to settled agricultural lifestyles, basically agriculture makes no sense without fermentation. Um, You know, it it just would be, it would be... um, uh, absurd to put all of your energy into crops that are ready at a given moment of the year if you did not have some techniques to preserve the harvest to feed you for the rest of the year. Right, of course. Um, <clears throat> so that yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and it's and gosh, uh, you know, it's almost we literally have no culture now. <laughs> so you know, people in, the, in our in our society. Is there not even pain? So, so you were talking to about the th- uh, three things that influence you. That was, t- I think, you got up to two. I didn't oh, I only got to the first two. You. Okay. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. So, but, but then, but then, having a garden. You know, I mean, I learned how to ferment because yeah. I had a garden, and I had the, you know, I, I had the same sort of, you know, need that people historically have had to to, to figure out how to preserve food. So then, th- th- there are some, there are some further. Um, further steps in my journey. I mean, I learned how to make sauerkraut. I got very enthusiastic about, uh, about sauerkraut and then started investigating other realms of fermentation. And I learned a little bit about making wine and I started, um, um, making sourdough bread. Um, we keep goats, uh, in the community where I live and I started playing around with cheese making. Um, I learned how to make miso. I learned how to make tempeh. Um, you know, I, I got very interested in the whole phenomenon of fermentation broadly, but I also, um, I also had an opportunity to teach people how to make sauerkraut. Some, uh, some friends of mine um, who turned their homestead into an eco-education center that they call the Sequatchie Valley Institute that's uh-huh. here in Tennessee uh, invited me to teach about uh, making sauerkraut. And, uh, you know, my first uh, uh, experience teaching people how to make sauerkraut, which was about 10 years ago, 1999, um, I learned that there's a huge cultural fear around aging food outside of refrigeration for, you know, those of us in the generations who have been, you know, raised in the context of refrigeration. And a refrigerator is simply a fermentation slowing device. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know that's its that's its significance in our lives as it slows down the microbial changes that inevitably happen to foods. Um, but for those of us who are, have been raised in this context, we're raised to fear food that sits out of refrigeration. If you take a food safety class that many states require of people who work in restaurants, then um, then then you hear this dogma that goes something like. Any food that sits outside of refrigeration for more than four hours is potentially dangerous and should be discarded. So you can't have now, a commercial kitchen. <laughs> now, that might make sense in the context of a restaurant, but as as an understanding right. of um, you know the dynamics of our food, it's uh, it, it is just patently absurd. If it mm-hmm. were so dangerous to eat any food that had sat outside of refrigeration for more than four hours, none of us would be here because our ancestors would have perished uh, thousands of years ago, and we never would have had an opportunity to uh, evolve as we have. You know, we have had the opportunity to evolve because our ancestors are very clever, and um, were very clever, and observed under what conditions foods could be preserved um, safely um, and effectively. And, you know, in fact, you know, uh, fermentation is, you know, a strategy not only for um, for food preservation, but for food safety. You know, fermented vegetables are safer than raw vegetables. Right. 
Um, you know, all of these, you know, um, uh, ridiculous scares that we've had about, um, you know, spinach and lettuce and, um, right. and almonds and apple cider and, you know, one food after another that's been, um, you know, experienced some sort of contamination in the context of industrial agriculture and then, you know, spread across 34 states before they could realize what the source of the contamination was. You know, the thing is that foods that are fermented, you know, even if they have been contaminated by some, you know, uh, you know, E. coli 0157 or salmonella or any of the notorious, you know, food poisoning contaminants, um, those contaminants would be overwhelmed by the native bacterial populations on the, um, on the vegetables, wow. and they would make it impossible for the contaminants to develop, and the acidification would actually destroy the contaminants. Mm. So, um, you know, so fermentation is, a, is an effective strategy not only for preservation but for food safety. So, so anyway, I mean, in my first experience of um, teaching about fermentation, I just learned about this huge cultural fear. Uh, almost everyone, it turns out, is terrified um, that they might accidentally make themselves sick. They might accidentally kill somebody. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and so, you know, like many aspects of food production that have disappeared behind factory doors, you know, people are very disempowered. Um, you know, these simple processes, which are ancient rituals, which our ancestors have been practicing for millennia, um, you know, people in our time, you know, uh, you know, educated, uh, sophisticated people are afraid of these ancient rituals and, uh, you know, afraid that they might do anything or uh, might do something wrong. So, um, you know, my cultural revivalist work, you know, is really just trying to empower people with, uh, with simple skills and, uh, you know, and reclaim this process into our lives. That's great. Cultural revivalist, I love it. <laughs> um, you know, and, and more broadly, I think that um, you know, I, I, I think that we are living in a, in a time where we all have been indoctrinated into mm -hmm. what I call the war on bacteria, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, and that is this this ideology that bacteria are bad. We should be killing bacteria, and I think you know, nothing is a more vivid. Uh, uh, illustration of this, you know, misguided idea than antibacterial cleansing soaps. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we're all there in the store washing. Uh, I mean, washing your hands is important. Um, but, you know, when you're, when you're standing there at the supermarket, like surveying your soap choices, you know, there's all of this um, uh, marketing encouraging you to buy the soap with the antibacterial compounds that kill 99.9% .9 of bacteria. And the, the effectiveness of that, you know, marketing strategy is that, you know, people in our time have been brainwashed to think that bacteria are our enemies. Mm -hmm. I don't want to deny that there do exist bacteria that can make us sick and can, um, can create infections in our bodies. But most bacteria, we can coexist with very, uh, very well, and in fact, many bacteria are important to our effective physiological functioning, to our ability to digest food, um, our ability to extract nutrients, and in particular, minerals from the foods that we eat. Um, they create a competitive situation that is precisely what protects us from the relatively small number of bacteria that have the potential to make us sick. Mm -hmm. um, and when we are continually wiping out these bacteria in, on, and around our bodies, all we're doing is making ourselves more vulnerable mm -hmm. to um, you know, infection from the pathogens. Bacteria are not our enemies. Bacteria are our ancestors. And, um, and we can embrace and reclaim bacteria as our allies and, and it seems as as even this 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 cleansing and antibacterial thing is even I, I find even in the natural health world too you probably find that too like people say oh i have to cleanse or i have to like when you when someone comes up to you and says oh sandy you know because they know you're a groovy natural health person right and they go oh i just did this fast or this cleanse or this herbal thing to cleanse myself what goes through your mind i mean what do you tell them <laughs> well i mean you know i i i i'm i'm not i'm definitely not averse to to periodic fasting i mm -hmm. mean I, I i think i i think that i think that periodic fasting can be a, a wonderful mm -hmm. thing but i mean fundamentally i think we have to like not think of our bodies as 
uh, as dirty mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, in need of, um, you know, sort of radical um, 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 deep cleaning. I mean, I think it's great to, you know, give our digestion um, a, a break. I think that's really the value of, 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 of fasting um, because digestion takes a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, no, I mean, I totally, I, I mean, I totally agree with what you're saying, that, um, um, you know, that, 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 that this, this, this idea of cleansing is built upon an ideology that presumes that, you know, our bodies are, are dirty. Right, right. And, um, you know, I think, I think we have to, you know, we, we have to honor our bodies. Um, you know, another thing I, I noticed that really struck me in your, in your book that, is that you're a, a long-term HIV survivor, correct? Correct. And so this is incredible because this obviously another thing it must be obviously that you're just like, hey, this is, this is keeping me going. This is, this is amazing for my immune system. Well, yeah, 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 definitely. I mean, I, I, I feel that the fermented foods, you know, have been an important part of my healing. Um, uh, you know, I guess I, I, I guess I, I don't really emphasize that because I have a lot of skepticism about a lot of, like, claims of miracle cures that mm-hmm. people make on behalf of specific foods. Cool. And I also want to be, um, you know, I, I want to be completely honest and, uh, you know, and say that I, I also take, um, I, I take HIV meds. I mean, I've been mm-hmm. taking meds every day for, for 10 years. Mm-hmm. I had a period, you know, I was hoping that, I was hoping that just, you know, um, uh, good living would, would keep me healthy. And, uh, and I had a health crisis with all of the classic wasting syndromes and persistent nausea for six months and um and i decided to 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 try the um the you know the the pharmaceutical uh solution and i've been um you know i've been i've been on parallel tracks i've been pursuing the pharmaceutical solution which um um you know seems to be working very effectively for me but Mm -hmm. i will say that um you know almost everyone who i've ever met who's been on the drugs that i've been on Mm -hmm. has experienced chronic diarrhea and Mm -hmm. i have never experienced that and i attribute um you know i I attribute my continued um uh, good digestive health to my regular consumption of live cultures um you know live culture foods have a lot of incredible benefits. I mean, you know, all the live culture vegetables contain compounds that are called isothiocyanates that are Mm. known to be anti-carcinogenic compounds. Mm. Does that mean that if somebody I loved was diagnosed with with brain cancer, I would tell them just eat sauerkraut and everything will be all right? I'm not sure that I would. Uh, But I would definitely say whatever other course of treatment they might be pursuing, they should be eating sauerkraut because, you know, a lot of those, uh, I mean, because it's potentially uh, anti-carcinogenic, and also because so many of the treatments have such um, detrimental effects on our digestive health, and this is a great way of keeping digestive health, um, uh, of keeping our digestive systems um, healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I would say that people who are specifically suffering from various digestive diseases, you know, ranging from uh, chronic constipation, acid reflux, Crohn's disease, irritable bowel syndrome. Um, um, you know, so many people report dramatic changes in their health from the regular consumption of live culture foods. Um, you know, I would say that, you know, if you are the healthiest specimen in the world, if you are just feeling the effects of aging like most of us are, if you are living with a long-term chronic illness, if you're facing an acute health uh, crisis, no matter what your health status, um, in almost every case, I think that the live culture foods can be beneficial and help improve digestion and assimilation of nutrients. And just on the basis of that, lots of different kinds of health problems can clear themselves up. Okay, so so let's say then, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm getting into this a little bit. I've either bought a, a copy of your book, which I recommend everybody does, um, or um, maybe I watch a little YouTube. I was thinking about embedding that YouTube video where you do the um, uh, on the page where I'll host this, you know, on HerbMentor.com, you know, where you uh, show the simple raw vegetable demonstration. Right, right, sure. I have a little, I have a little uh, sauerkraut making demonstration. It's great. On there. And uh, okay, so I do that. I, I got some sauerkraut in the fridge. Uh, some other, maybe I use that fermented YouTube, you know, that video, or maybe I've got some yogurt or kefir. I've made some pickles. Very simple stuff to do, as you outline. Uh, or maybe you know I didn't make the miso, but I I bought some from SouthRiverMiso.com, or I went and I got some at the health food store. How, what amount 
do I, you know, if I have one of those things in my fridge or some of those things, what amount in my, in my fridge is about what I should be eating to keep up my digestive health? Um, okay, I think that, you know, these fermented vegetables have typically been used as condiments. People eating a small amount of them to flavor their other food, um, uh, you know, traditionally they've been made very salty, although it's, you can definitely make them with only a moderate amount of salt or even with no salt at all, if you like. I think they mm-hmm. taste a lot better with some salt. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, because they've historically been salty foods, they're things that people typically eat in small amounts. Um, and it's really not about eating huge amounts. It's more about um, eating them regularly. Um, so I think, um, you know, if you, uh, you know, if you're, if you are, you know, two people living in an apartment, a quart of vegetables, uh, you know, a quart of fermented vegetables, which mm-hmm. takes about two pounds of vegetables to make, um, you know, should last you for, for weeks. Wow. Um, um, but, but if you, but if you really love it, I mean, there's not, there's nothing wrong with eating more. The only downside <laughs> is if it's salty. And so I really, you know, recommend that, you know, people who are not making this food with the imperative of survival to, um, you know, to, to be able to, you know, for, this was a survival food for farmers in, um, in, in temperate regions. You know, picture, uh, you know, picture, uh, you know, Minnesota, you know, somewhere where there's a very limited growing season. Oftentimes, for people in a region like this, that this was the only vitamin C that people would have access to over the course of the long winter. So that's where the tradition of using a lot of salt comes from, is the imperative of, um, of, of preserving it for a long time. But, you know, if you're not needing to preserve it for long periods of time, use just a little bit of salt. And then if you like the flavor of it, you know, feel free to eat a pint a day, a quart a day. It's not going to hurt you. It's great stuff. Oh wow, that's great. Um, but 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 you don't need to eat a lot. You know, each spoonful has billions of um, bacterial cells. Um, you know, when when we're talking about you know replenishing bacterial populations, we're not you know talking about huge quantities of food. It's more about um, you know regular ingestion than high quantity ingestion. It doesn't matter which type you're choosing to eat, because like you know in your book you're. Miso, sauerkraut, you know, kimchi, yogurt, a lot of, you know, dairy, things like that, and uh, there's uh, pickles, I mean, breads, crackers, I, I mean, stews. I would say, you know, eat, eat what you like. Okay. Um, don't assume that if you don't like sauerkraut that you've had at a hot dog stand or in a can, that that's the only way it can be. Um, you know, you, you know, people are making all sorts of you know, radically different styles of sauerkraut, um, depending on how long you ferment it for, what kinds of spices you add into it, mm-hmm. uh, how salty you make it, how long you ferment it for. Um, you can really achieve a huge range of different flavors. Um, personally, I would say that there is a benefit to um, eating lots of different types of ferments, eating ferments at different stages of development. Um, and, you know, these are all uh, ways of, you know, basically building biodiversity mm-hmm. inside our bodies, micro, m- microbial biodiversity. Um, but, um, but, you know, you don't have to start, you don't start out thinking that, you know, you have to have, you know, 10 different live culture ferments that you're eating every day. You know, just, just find, find what you like, find what uh, feels good when you eat it, and, uh, you know, and start incorporating that into your diet. And then if you have the, you know, the energy to, um, you know, start incorporating another, uh, another food, then pick a second. But I think that, you know, just trying to do it all at once is really, you know, just a, um, um, you know, a, a recipe for disaster. I know. It always happens when you really get into I'd something. Descri- <laughs> I'd love to describe a really simple ferment that I love um, um, that's incredibly easy for people to make, and it's a drink. It's called beet kvass. Mm. I'm drinking um, some right now. I got some. <laughs> all right, you're drinking some beet kvass right I now. Got, I got my wife. My wife could made not it. be simpler to make. Yeah, so you take, a, you take a small to medium-sized beet scrub it, cut the top off of it, chop it up into half-inch cubes, put it in a quart-sized jar, fill the jar the rest of the way with water, add a pinch of salt, seal the top on the jar, and leave it on your counter for a few days, Mm -hmm. three, four days. Taste it. 
if uh, um, uh, it, what, what will happen is, you know, as the days pass, the color and the sugar and the flavor from the beets will infuse into the water, and it will all begin to ferment, which means that it will begin to acidify. So if you taste it and the flavor still tastes weak, give it another day or two. The flavor will get stronger as more of the flavor infuses into the water and as it begins to get more noticeably acidic. Um, and then when it reaches the point where you like it, strain the beets out and you can just drink that beet kvass right then and there or you can put it in the refrigerator and just have a little sip each day as a, uh, as a little uh, tonic. Um, and then if you want, you can put some more water over those same beets and do a second, or what I call a second pressing. Oh. Uh, the second pressing will be a little bit weaker in flavor, but it will go a lot faster because the beets have already built up a much denser um, um, uh, population of acidifying bacteria. Fantastic. Thanks for that extra advice. That's good. Um, you know, you were, just, you were just talking a minute ago about uh, often being used as condiments. And um, that's what I've heard too, like uh, especially using soy, like uh, you know, in, in tamari, for example. Um, I just wanted your opinion because this comes up. Um, I, I I just comes up from time to time on 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 our on our site or, or I see out there. You know, what's your run on the um, you know, is, especially especially okay? Are, are you are you vegetarian, Sander? No, no, I'm not, I am not okay. a vegetarian. Well, of the vegetarians that you know. Um, me neither, but, um, you, you know, there, there's, a, there's this, first of all, I, I, a lot of people think like, oh, a vegetarian and they always associate maybe with Weston Price Foundation or something like that. Like, oh, you know, I don't, I'm a vegetarian and, 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 and really these are what we're talking about so far, really vegetables <laughs> that way. And, and so anyone can eat them. But the thing I'm talking about is a lot of vegetarians I talk to consume a high unfermented soy diet. Um, and I was just wondering what you, you know, your your take on you know the unfermented soy products versus the fermented soy products such as you know tamari good tamari well tamari. sure okay so um, okay first of all you know one of the um, other important nutritional benefits of fermentation mm -hmm. is that fermentation pre-digests whatever it is that you're ferment fermenting mm -hmm. uh, it is you know at least partially digested before it goes into your mouth. With certain foods, this is more important than with other foods. And I would say that the, the single food in which this pre-digestion aspect of fermentation is the most critical is with soybeans. Um, you know, soybeans, um, you know, the, reasons, the reason why the vegetarian subculture adopted soybeans as the, you know, almost singular replacement for meat and for milk is that soybeans are the plant food that has the highest concentration of protein. Oh, but if you just, you know, soak some soybeans and then cook them for six hours and sit down with a bowl of soybeans to eat for dinner, um, that's going to be a memorable evening for you because you're, you're going to have terrible <laughs> indigestion and gas all night. And, um, you know, basically our human digestive tracts are not equipped to digest soybeans and certainly not to extract all of that protein that's in the soybeans. So the, you know, the, the, the Asian cultures that pioneered soy agriculture all developed these amazing ways of fermenting the soybeans. And so, you know, there's soy sauce that, uh, you know, is a condiment in, you know, much of Asia. Mm -hmm. There's miso. There's natto, a Japanese soy ferment that's remained a little bit more obscure in uh, in the West. There's uh, there's tempeh, the uh, the Indonesian ferment. And if you're familiar with these foods, they're very different from one another in flavor and in texture. But what they have in common is that the protein of the soybeans gets pre-digested into amino acids, the building blocks of proteins that our bodies can access. Mm -hmm. So it just makes the, 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 the nutrition that's present in the soybeans um, so much more accessible to us by, by fermenting it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, fermented uh, you know, soy products are just vastly more um, uh, digestible and nutritious uh, for us than non-fermented um, soy products. 
Thank you. Thank uh, you. Uh, you know, so, soy right. sauce, tamari, you know, all, 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 like all of those are fermented. Miso is fermented. Tempeh is fermented. Natto um, is a really wonderful food that, that, that you know, we're, we're learning about, uh, about some, you know, extraordinary, uh, you know, health benefits from this food that's remained a little bit more obscure. Um, you know, in addition to, to, to pre-digestion and, uh, and the live cultures, and, and by, by the way, not all fermented foods contain live cultures. Lots of fermented foods are cooked after their fermentation and before they are consumed. So those just by definition cannot have live cultures. And I, I don't mean to suggest that that's always a terrible thing to do. It's just to understand, um, uh, you know, an important distinction. But um, many ferments contain um, unique micronutrients that are generated by the microorganisms over the course of their life cycles as they are digesting the foods for us. And, uh, and then they're contributing these unique micronutrients to the food. So I, I mentioned earlier that the vegetable ferments all contain isothiocyanates, which are these uh, anti-carcinogenic compounds. Well, um, um, uh, um, uh, miso contains this extraordinary compound called dipicolinic acid, and dipicolinic acid in our bodies functions as a magnet for heavy metals, and it can literally pull heavy metals out of our cells, bind with them, and deliver them out of our bodies. Well, natto, this Japanese uh, soy ferment, which is which is not really uh, caught on so much in 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 in, uh, in the West because it's slimy and we have an aversion to slimy mucilaginous <laughs> textures in food. But it's really it's really a very delicious food. Um, uh, you know, if 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 that doesn't put you off too much. But anyway, natto has this compound that's gotten a lot of attention called natto kinase. And if you go into you know if you go into supplement stores, you can find capsules of natto kinase and. You know, at first they were using it for people to, to regulate blood clotting, in particular for people at risk for aneurysms and other mm. kinds of clotting disorders. Mm. But some you know, new research in the last six months or so suggests that natokinase might actually help uh, prevent or even treat Alzheimer's disease. So there's a you know, huge new interest wow. in this you know, food that has until now been uh, you know, fairly obscure in the West. So, uh, so vegetarians eat your natto, not your tofurkey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and, and, <laughs> and and also, I mean, I would say, like, don't look to a single, uh, you know, sort of food to, um, to you know, as a source for all your your protein, protein and exactly. and you're a lot better off with, uh, with 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 soy after it's been fermented rather than unfermented forms of soy. Thank you. Um, you know, just a little question. I, we have some member questions, some techie types of questions that came in. I want to ask uh, for for the benefit of our members. I asked them, uh, "Hey, you know, what, what would you want to ask Sandor if you had a chance?" Uh, before I do that, my, I guess I'll ask my question first, since it's since it's my show and and I can do what I want. Right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> we uh, one thing that we really we my my wife loves making uh, fermented, <clears throat> like using ginger culture and whatnot, and making sodas. Like she she's just gotten really good at it, you know make doing like fermented you, you know do you know that process you know when you're doing the yeah yeah so yeah naturally carbonated sweet beverages right sure. with the with the ginger and the culture and then making that first and putting that in there and 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 also you know i, I like i brew a few different wines in a year i like my elderberry my my blackberry and all so um you know I know that the so the sodas containing uh sugar and we know the wine containing alcohol and these two things aren't you know so great uh for you but um but you know when you compare them to conventional things i mean is there health benefits to these beverages well sure i mean they have live cultures mm -hmm. you know i mean they have i, I mean the, you know the, you know it's the only way to achieve carbonation unless you attach like a, a a tank with synthetic carbon dioxide to something is through fermentation and, and the cultivation of cultures. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, yeah, these naturally fermented sodas, and there's lots of different ways that people are, people are doing them, different sources of the cultures that people are using. Um, but, yeah, sure, they all contain live cultures. And, okay. um, you know, and, and that in and of itself is, is, is a health benefit. They still have lots of their sugar intact, so I would recommend that people, you know, limit their consumption. You know, it's not, you know, drinking, uh, you know, drinking half a gallon of naturally fermented soda is really no better for you than drinking half a gallon a day of, 
um, uh, you know, synthetic sodas. Uh, you're, you're still getting all that sugar. But, um, but sure, yeah, for, you know, as an occasional treat, um, you know, as an alternative, uh, uh, you know, for your kids, it, it's, it's a great idea. Yeah, because the kids love I it. I would say, I mean, as a practical matter, the, the biggest challenge for naturally fermenting sodas is you, you're sealing something that's alive and fills a lot of sugar in uh, an enclosed vessel. Oh, yeah. And that's how you're getting your carbonation. <laughs> but, but moderate carbonation is useful. Extreme carbonation... I mean, it, 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 it ends up wasting your drink because it all comes out as foam <laughs> and it becomes potentially dangerous, like a bomb that could explode. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so you wa- really want to ferment for short periods of time. What I always do is, um, you know, I, I prefer to use glass to plastic, but when I do things like that that have the potential of building up a lot of pressure, mm. I always put one bottle in plastic so I can gauge how pressurized it's becoming. Uh, and then once it starts feeling, um, you know, like it's under significant amount of pressure, move them all into the refrigerator, your fermentation slowing machine, and then, you know, you want to drink them. These, you know, naturally carbonated sodas are not like a Coke that you can just right. like, leave in your cupboard for eight years. You make a gallon um, at a time. You know, they, will, they will explode. Make small batches and, uh, you know, enjoy them as soon as they get carbonated. And, uh, you know, you can store them uh, in your refrigerator to slow them down, but pressure will still build uh, over time even in your refrigerator. And anyone listening here, we've got uh, video recipes uh, on doing this pro- these processes on our mentor, the soda, step-by-step if you're curious. <laughs> um, so let's get some of the um, member questions if you don't mind. Um, so uh, a few techie questions here. Um, Amber wanted to know, because um, she, uh, she, she, she wanted to know, um, can, can, can you ask about making yogurt with raw milk? Should you only heat to 110 degrees? So what would you say to that? Okay, that's a, that's a, it's a great question. So, um, uh, you know, I, I, definitely, I definitely, you know, am part of the raw milk revolution. I love raw milk. I feel like yeah. it tastes better. Uh, it's more digestible. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it makes more sense. Um, it's, it's better for us, um, you know, if it's from healthy animals. Uh, you know, we certainly would not want to s- stop uh, pasteurizing all of the commercial milk supply in the United States. That would be a terrible idea. But anyway, as for yogurt making, th- the thing is that raw, raw milk has a native bacterial population. If you just leave raw milk on the counter, those bacteria will um, acidify the milk. That is soured milk, and that is how most people throughout history have been able to enjoy milk because uh, fresh milk is really a phenomenon of the 20th century and, and uh, widespread refrigeration. And in parts of the world where refrigeration is not as widespread, people are still used to drinking sour milk. The derivation of all of the cultured milks that people enjoy is somebody's soured milk that happened in a particular environment that just yielded uh, a spectacular you know, flavor or, um, or texture. The problem with making yogurt out of raw milk is that there is this native bacterial population that to a certain degree will compete with the specific community of organisms that you add to make yogurt. Mm-hmm. So, um, um, uh, you know, you can make lovely raw milk yogurt, but you'll just always have to accept that it will be thin and runny. And, um, you know, it will never get as thick as it gets uh, if you heat up the milk. Um, which, you know, uh, which effectively kills the native bacterial population. And also, the, you know, the, the, the heat denatures the proteins, which has something to do with, um, uh, you know, making the, the, the thick texture that people really love in yogurt. Mm. Um, so you can make raw milk yogurt, um, but you just have to accept that it will be much uh, thinner and runnier than um, the yogurt that you're used to. In either case, whether you're using raw or from the supermarket, the temperature you'd heat to is about 180-ish or something? Or Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, to denature the proteins right. uh, and, um, you know, kill any native bacteria, yeah, heat it up to, heat it up to about 180, then cool it, cool it down, um, uh, you know, try, try to cool it uh, quickly um, use, using a cold water bath or something around the pot. Um, down to 110, and 110 is the ideal temperature at which to uh, incubate it. A- add your uh, add your yogurt cultures uh, and incubate. 
Okay, so you're you're incubating it at one ten amber. Okay, so yeah. Okay, and so, so you know, I mean, some people buy these little plug-in thermostatically controlled devices, and those are fine. But don't feel like you have to have one of those. I do it basically in an insulated cooler. I yes. preheat the cooler with some hot water, yeah. and then I put and then I then I, then I put my my jars of of yogurt right into that preheated cooler. Um, I've seen people just wrap it up in a blanket, sometimes with a couple of hot water bottles mm-hmm. to. To help generate some heat under there, um, you know, this has, for most people throughout history, been an improvisational um, um, process. Oh, that's where our and hot water bottle is. I've been looking for uh, it. <laughs> I, no, you're. Uh, thank you for reminding me. I was looking for it. That's why my wife's got it in the cooler where she's making the yogurt. Duh. <laughs> um, so she she's read conflicting information on how much yogurt to use as a starter. Some say no more than one tablespoon. Um, and others say a half a cup. So, you have any- um, no, no, definitely let let less is more. Less is more. Um, I I learned that from the joy of cooking. Um, but um, uh, yeah, you, uh, you you will not you will not, you will not get thicker yogurt by by just adding more starter. Mm-hmm. Um, about a tablespoon per quart. Right. Is uh, is sufficient. So she should just know that if she, you know, she was looking for a thicker yogurt, that raw milk is basically going to give you a thinner yogurt. It sounds like. Yeah. Well, okay. You know, the other thing about the pursuit of thickness in yogurt Mm -hmm. is, you know, our, you know, our expectations have been created by, you know, industrialized yogurt. So, you know, every batch of industrial uh, of industrial yogurt, they're using like a like a laboratory cultured uh, a, a laboratory cultured starter um which has uh, like a very high balance of the the bacteria that makes yogurt coagulate is not the acidifying bacteria. It's another uh, um uh, bacteria called Streptococcus thermophilus that is found in the same community. Um so, so if you always use like a pure starter that has exactly the right balance of those things, and then most of the commercial yogurts, they're, they're, they're you know, adding in, you know, either some extra cream or some extra milk powder, or in certain cases, even, you know, things like gelatin um, um, or collagen as thickeners. You know, they, they learned that people love thick yogurt, so they're using all these sort of like, you know, tricks to make the yogurt even thicker. Like the yogurt we're eating now is thicker than the yogurt that people have enjoyed historically um so um you know you don't have to don't 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 judge your it'll be really hard for your yogurt to be quite as firm as some of the commercial yogurts are but some of the things that will help are um yeah preheating right before you make your yogurt bringing it up to 180 degrees and then uh and then cooling it down maintaining your incubation temperature as close to 110 degrees as you can um and uh, and if you see if you keep on perpetuating your starter, if you keep on taking a little batch of your yogurt and um, and using that as a starter for the next one, it will get it will the the, the balance of uh, microbes in the community will shift over time, and chances are that your yogurt will will stop being quite as firm. So you know you can really you know yogurt can be fine and still has a certain thickness to it, but not be as thick as some of the commercial yogurts. Um, it can still be wonderful. Okay. Or if you're you know if you're in pursuit of um, you know the product that you're used to, then you're going to keep need to like periodically refresh your starter and and uh, you know go back to um, you know uh, one of the purer strains coming uh, you know out of a commercial product. Can, you know, you're talking before about um, you know milk, raw milk souring. Uh, can you can you use that soured raw milk uh, to make yogurt at that point, or is it past the? Um, no, I mean once it's that acidified, then the 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 Streptococcus thermophilus mm-hmm. uh, bacteria won't be very active, so okay. you won't you it won't be thick. You know, raw milk that's sour is safe to drink. Mm-hmm. Um, you may or may not like the flavor of it, but you know all of the you know fermented milk products that people enjoy yogurt, kefir, field milk, vilai, pima. There's you know there's there's just infinite variety in 
in you know cultured milks that uh, you know basically every human culture that domesticated lactating animals for their milk you know developed um, you know traditions of, of, of culturing milk um, but they all they all arose spontaneously from you know somebody's sour milk that had a particularly lovely flavor and or texture ah. so um, you don't have to be afraid of trying your 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 uh, your your soured milk it might be it might be very it might be totally delicious you might love it um, what, what I sometimes do is let it get really sour so it separates it curdles itself and it separates and the milk the milk fat slow to the top and I skim it off and I put it in a jar and I write sour cream and we use it like sour cream oh. um, Wow. But um, uh, you know, just 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 taste it. See what you think of the flavor. Um, you know, it's w- w- when pasteurized milk sits too long, it does not sour. It develops um, bacteria that are typically referred to as putrefying bacteria rather than souring bacteria. Um, when raw milk with a native population of lactobacilli sours. Um, the flavor becomes sour, and it becomes densely populated with really beneficial bacteria. Our, our milk, uh, our raw milk, we with two kids in the house, they they never gets the chance to go sour. <laughs> All right, well, um, that's that's the best. Is there a difference uh, when making yogurt between goat's milk or cow's milk in the process? No, no, the uh, the the. The, the, the process is the same. I mean, the goat's milk and cow's milk are, are different. You know, if you're working with raw milk especially, um, uh, goat's milk is naturally homogenized, whereas cow's milk, uh, the, the cream floats to the top. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so, you know, you get this, like, stratification uh, in it in, with, with, with the cow's milk that you don't get in goat's milk. Um, a lot of people assume that goat's milk has less, uh, less fat, and, in fact, goat's milk has a little bit more fat. It's okay. just that it's um, it's just that it's naturally homogenized. All right. Okay. So um, <clears throat> switching away from uh, yogurt here, um, Manzanilla in Texas, and she's in Texas, so it's hot down there, and she even says it's pretty hot and even in, very warm in December even, and so she um, she was she has a uh, let's see an air, an un air conditioned attached garage and. Uh, she says, should I risk keeping home canned pickles and kraut in the garage during the hot months, or does the honey-to-do list need to include more shells inside? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I would say any time, I mean, okay, so first of all, let me say, like, I, I am really opposed to canning your sauerkraut. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this is sort of the, this is the typical American approach to sauerkraut mm-hmm. is to, uh, is to can it. Mm-hmm. But I think that you're, you know, you destroy the, um, you know, the most profound nutritional benefit of the sauerkraut, which mm-hmm. is the live cultures themselves when you, when you heat process it. Mm-hmm. But just to answer the question, I mean, I would say any, um, you know, any heat processed food is going to stay nutritious longer in a cooler place. Uh, you know, just nutrients will degrade faster if it's stored in a very hot place. So you might try to you might try to get some shelves in a in a cooler place in, in your in your house. Let me say about about making sauerkraut and some of these other um, um, ferments that historically have been strategies for food preservation. Right, right. Um, you know, historically they're done in the fall when the temperatures are getting cool. Um, and that's when you have the most potential for long-term preservation over, you know, three months, six months, nine months. Um, you know, in a, in a hot climate um, during the summer, it's not the time to, um, you know, ferment things for long-term storage. However, you can ferment in any, um, in any temperature range that, that you live in. You just have to understand the dynamics that all of these fermentation microorganisms, their metabolisms speed up when it's warmer and slow down when it's cooler. So if you make, um, you know, like today it's 95 degrees here where I live in Tennessee, you know, I, I have some sauerkraut going right now, but I just I have to understand that that's a short-term process um, that I'm making just because I, I enjoy the flavors and I like the health benefits of it, and that is not going to last for, you know, six or nine months because it started off in this 95-degree temperature and it's going through its process very quickly. But what it does mean is that, you know, after five days or a week, it has progressed significantly further and it's a really transformed food and it's wonderful. Um, but, you know, you just have to adjust your expectations to your, um, your climate realities. Okay, great. And one last quick member question, and, and I think you already, <clears throat> excuse me, I think you already answered it. 
but just to just to bring it up for Peggy's sake, because she participates a lot online, um, and she's like wondering about people with candida and how fermentation can help, and that really does relate to what you talked about earlier too. Okay, but, but I, I want to address the question um, uh, directly if we have time, yeah, because, sure. because it's, a, it. it's a question that comes up a lot, mm-hmm. and um, you know a lot of a lot of the sort of standard medical advice for candida will include avoid all fermented foods, uh-huh. and Personally, I think that's a terrible idea for someone with candida, and I think that that is only, you know, the response of somebody who can't be bothered to distinguish between different types of ferments. Um, but, but basically, when you have candida, you want to avoid carbohydrate-based foods. That's what is, you know, feeding the yeast that you're having an overgrowth problem with. Um, but one of the reasons why these yeasts are, 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 are growing out of control in your body is because their bacterial competitors are not there or are not, um, are, are not thriving. So, so actually, um, you know, my perspective, and you know, with the disclaimer that I am not a healthcare provider, but you know, at this point I have heard sort of the anecdotal stories of so many hundreds of people um, um, that, 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 that I firmly believe it, um, that, um, you know, okay, first of all, you want to avoid the ferments that are based on carbohydrates, and that's lots of ferments, alcohol, vinegar, bread, kombucha, you know, these are all ferments that are based on carbohydrates. But, um, but the ferments that are based on foods that are not primarily carbohydrates, the vegetable ferments, the milk ferments, um, and, and, and that have live bacterial cultures in them, uh, you know, actually are precisely, uh, you know, the thing that in combination with avoiding carbohydrates can help, um, you know, um, uh, replenish the bacterial populations in your body that can compete with the yeast that you're having a problem with. So I think that, you know, sauerkraut, yogurt, kefir, uh, kimchi, certain of the tonic beverages like the beet kvass, um, um, actually can be wonderful, wonderful um, um, treatments for candida. Excellent. You know, um, Sandor, I was, I was at a hotel uh, with my family last week. Uh, we t- spent some time down by the beach in Oregon coast, and my, my daughter was mystified by this box that was on top of the refrigerator. And my uh, son walks up, and, uh, you know, who's 10 years old, and she's five, and described it as a microwave and that how it's not a healthy thing to cook in. <laughs> and I just, it's one of those parental moments when you're observing and you go, it's getting through, you know, uh, but your, your new book, the revolution will not be microwave. I love that title. And could you just tell us, um, if you have the time, um, um, about this book and what inspired you to write it? Sure. I, I mean, the revolution will not be microwave. Uh, well, for one thing, it, it's not about microwaves. Like that's it's about grassroots food activism and projects that people are doing to create better food choices for themselves and in their communities. And um, you know, it runs the gamut from you know the revival of local food and of farmers markets and the uh, and the um, and and the the growth of the CSA concept to things like the, you know, the raw milk underground and other raw food movements. Um, um, uh, uh, you know, I, I addressed some of the uh, impediments to the reemergence of, of local food, and one of the themes that runs through the book is how um, um, uh, laws that have been enacted in the name of food safety, you know, actually are having the perverse effect of, um, you know, discouraging local food production um, because the regulations are, are so much written uh, for the needs of the large-scale producers. And, you know, oftentimes the, um, uh, you know, regulations that's appropriate to um, uh, people producing at a large scale simply have the effect of preventing the possibility of people producing at a smaller scale because, uh, because the facilities that are described are just not economically feasible if you're doing a small-scale uh, um, uh, business. But, but really the emphasis is on you know, grassroots movements and what people are doing um, that's positive because I know that you know, so much of the information about, um, you know, about our food system is bleak. 
And uh, you know, I think I do think that many of the you know many of the realities of our food system are very bleak. But we're not going to solve them by just uh, you know sitting around and feeling depressed about them. You know, we have to you know figure out strategies to create better better choices for ourselves and uh, you know and the people we love. Um, you know, my inspiration for writing the book was you know as I traveled around after Wild Fermentation came out and uh, you know started meeting all these people who were interested in fermentation. Most of them were not interested only in fermentation. Most of them, you know, the, the context in which they were coming to fermentation was their involvement in some other kind of, um, you know, food activist work. Um, and so, you know, it's really the, the inspirational tales of people I've met, um, you know, as, as I've uh, traveled around teaching people about fermentation. Um, I do teach fermentation workshops. I list them on my, on my website. I do a certain amount of traveling and doing them um, mm-hmm you know, in different places, but then I also have a teaching kitchen here in uh, Middle Tennessee uh, where I live, and I offer more intensive workshops here for people who are interested in really, um, um, you know, exploring uh, this more deeply, mm-hmm. and uh, that information is all on my website, which is wildfermentation.com, and um, you can also get my books through my website. <laughs> I love it when, uh, you know, it's just always a great interview when literally this whole time you've been literally like... Um, answering the next the next thing I was saying the next thing I was going to ask <laughs> say <laughs> before I do <laughs> I love it so in a way we're uh, creating creating a new culture here right get it no, no. <laughs> absolutely absolutely and, and, and we and we have to create a new culture I mean you know the um, you know the paradigm of um, you know globalized commodity food is you know rapidly destroying the earth and depleting natural resources um, it is destroying our health and resulting in a situation where today, um, you know, our uh, our children are expected to have shorter life t- life, uh, life spans than, than we are, uh, and it's really destroyed, you know, any kind of underpinnings of economic security. And um, you know, producing food from the land is the source of all wealth. And, um, you know, we really need to devolve our agriculture, get away from the sort of, you know, high-tech mass production way of thinking about it, um, and reintegrate food production, you know, back into the lives of our communities. And I think that, um, you know, fermentation is, is one aspect of that that's, uh, that, that's, uh, that's not insignificant, that uh, has a lot of potential for, you know, improving our health, um, and uh, and moving us past this uh, ridiculous war on bacteria ideology. Once again, folks, thank you so much. Well, once again, folks, you can uh, visit Sander online at wildfermentation.com. And like always on Herb Mentor Radio, uh, we really encourage uh, you to support the authors, and the great way you can support Sander is uh, going to his website where he has both his awesome books on sale right there. Um, you could subscribe to his free newsletter, find out where he's teaching, uh, such as uh, the Fermentation Festival in Portland, Oregon on August 27, 2009, and many more. So did I get all that right, Sander? Do you have anything to add there? No, no, you got it all. Oh, excellent. Well, Sander Katz, it's been an amazing experience. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. Herb Mentor Radio on HerbMentor.com is a production of LearningHerbs.com. Visit LearningHerbs.com for free herbal lessons, including Herb Mentor News, Home Remedy Secrets, and Supermarket Herbalism. You'll also find the Herbal Medicine Making Kit and our board game Wildcraft. Herb Mentor Radio, copyright LearningHerbs.com, all rights reserved. Thanks so much for listening.